If you're able, would you stand with me, please? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And who prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed? And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered and said, answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you before the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Elphaz the Tamanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you and I have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Elphaz the Tamanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that God had brought, that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. 
And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemimiah, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karin Hapok. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. And he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. The word of the Lord. Lynn Shorefield was walking uh, with her sister, and her sister asked if she had heard the story. And Lynn didn't know what she was talking about, and so her sister began to relay to her the story that she had heard, which was the story of Nia Parker. Nia Parker lived in Maryland, and in 2015, she, uh, she was the mother of a severely disabled son. Her son uh, was in his early 20s, uh, but couldn't, couldn't speak really had no cognitive ability, couldn't care for himself in any way. And she uh, went out to the woods with him and set him on a blanket and put a Bible by his side and left. Afterwards, she would say she was just trying to get away for a couple hours, but she never came back. Miraculously, he was found a week later, uh, somehow still alive. But as Lynn heard this story, her stomach flipped over. She gasped because she too was the mother of a severely disabled son who was also in his early 20s. As a baby, he ate a handful of dirt, and uh, as any child will do. And a microscopic organism went into his body and laid eggs in his brain, which uh, caused untold destruction. His immune system would eventually uh, put the eggs and the larva to rest, but he would never be the same. And their lives were changed forever. You see, when Lynn heard the story of this boy who had been left in the woods, she knew that feeling. She knew what it was like, the loneliness, to be tied all of the time to, uh, to a child, a severely disabled child at home. She, she said often the highlight of her day was to chat with the bus driver because it was the only outside contact she would have. When she fantasized, she fantasized about just having the freedom to get in the car and drive somewhere. It didn't matter where, just to have that level of freedom. The divorce rate for parents with severely disabled kids is well over 80%. And as uh, Lynn and her uh, would-be her ex-husband, you know, initially came to terms with what had uh, afflicted their child and thought, our lives are changed forever. Uh, It will never be the same. We live in the grief of who our boy Bond may have been. We'll never know. Uh, we, our money, our time, everything will be uh, amazingly affected as a result of caring for Bond. And so that notion of, um, even, even we might say the temptation of doing something dramatic to free yourself from such requirement. Of course, Lynn, uh, in a very insightful way, said, you know, when we attempt to make those decisions, we give up part of our humanity. But the point of relaying this story to you this morning is to say, I think, first of all, that's a pretty good uh, picture, a pretty good metaphor of how Job must have felt. Uh, despairing, 
suffering, uh, afraid, alone, deserted by everyone, right? Sitting on the blanket and asking if God was actually going to be present. And not only is it a metaphor for Job, I think that in most cases is our greatest fear. That uh, as we go through this world and experience pain and suffering, as we are confronted with situations that are out of our control, that cause us great frustration and we wonder where God is at, the question that nags in the back of our minds is, uh, is God present? And if he is present, does he care? And the answer, if the answer to those questions is no, then really you are in an extremely hopeless state. You're in an extremely hopeless world. And that, I think, is the fear that, in part, Job wants to address. Is God present? Uh, does he care? Finally, God shows up. We've waited all summer and made our way through the book of Job. And in chapter 38, uh, God makes his appearance. And yet it may not be as we would have expected it. It may not be quite the vo- voice that we may have anticipated given all that Job's been through. If you look at God's beginning in 38, in the first few verses, few verses, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Well, what's God's voice? You know, if you actually assign a voice to what God is saying to Job, what does the voice sound like? Is God angry? Is he exasperated? Is he being playful? That's not a joke. Some commentators think his questions are so ridiculous that he's being a little bit, in a fatherly way, playful with uh, with Job. How, How are you going to read God's voice? That's a huge interpretive question regarding the book. And really, how you consider the book to end dictates how you're going to read the rest of the book. Today, in some ways, is the most important sermon... And in some ways, it would almost be nice to start with this and go back and do the book because this is really uh, the linchpin of understanding how God is approaching uh, Job. Now, we're going to have to work at the passage to understand how God, what God's voice is, what he's trying to communicate to Job, but a couple of things we can say simply by sheer observation. Right? One is that God is trying to broaden Job's horizons. Right? In other words, uh, God doesn't come in and accuse Job of failing in some capacity. He doesn't charge Job with sin. He enters into a long barrage of questions. Uh, questions with which you feel like Job maybe is going to try to get a breath. And he says, okay, okay, I realize I've, I've spoken a bit beyond my, my pay grade. And God says, no, I'm not done yet. And goes through another long barrage of questions. But it's really essentially all questions, and the questions aren't answerable from Job's perspective. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you when I restrained the sea and established the land? Were you there when I decided to give the ostrich speed and the lion fierceness? Right? Can you catch Leviathan, the great sea monster? Can you control Behemoth, the great land monster? Over and over again, to which, of course, the answer to these questions is, uh, no, I, I, I don't know, and I can't, and uh, I wasn't there, right? They're, they're, over, they're almost um, rhetorical. The answer is so obvious, they don't warrant an answer. 
And surely, at least the point is, as we'll compare it to Job, is uh, God establishing and reminding Job of the distinction between creator and creature. Right? Let's, God says, listen, Job, you're frustrated because you have not, you've assumed that there is not a purpose in the suffering and that I am not present. Right? Simply because that may not be your experience and simply because you cannot think of a purpose does not mean that one does not exist. Right? demonstrated by all of the things that I am able to do and all of the things that I have done and all of the things that I consider, you need to reevaluate your stance, at least to some degree before me, in terms of what you have assumed. Simply to not see my purpose does not mean that it exists, that it doesn't exist. Okay? But again, we still haven't gotten into his voice. And clearly this is what God is trying to, to teach Job or to instruct him. But is he angry or exasperated or loving? How do we understand his response uh, to Job? And this is an interpretive uh, issue that requires greater attention. And I'll tell you straight up, it's an interpretive question about which commentators are essentially split. Divided almost in half. And you're going, I'm going to advocate a reading to you, but ultimately you will have to decide how you're going to read the end of the book of Job. And to examine this issue, we have to look particularly at 42, 1 through 6, and then especially at verse 6 of chapter 42. So uh, put on your theological hats and uh, look there with me. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Okay, so far, so good. Job essentially says, I got it. I'm speaking way above my pay grade. All right, here you are. Let me ask some questions and be taught by you. But he continues, he says I, in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, the crux is really verse 6, so I'm going to read it one more time. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, is Job repenting of sin? This is the question. Did Job sin or did he not sin? What is the nature of this repentance that's described in verse 6? If Job is repenting from sin, then we have a few challenges. Because if you remember, way back at the beginning of the book, as the book was introduced, in chapter 1, verse 22, the narrator says, In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Right? In all of this. Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, are we to now understand that the narrator meant, well, for most of Job, uh, he got it right and didn't charge God with wrong, but at the very end, he messed up. What is the narrator trying to say? Furthermore, in 42, verse 7, which is immediately after verse 6 in chapter 42, right? if someone, typically, if a saint in the Old Testament is confessing something and repenting, God usually acknowledges that repentance, Think something, okay, I forgive you. And Job was uh, reestablished. He was forgiven. He was restored. But when you go into verse 7, this is immediately what you get. 
After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. That's a little bit of a funny response of Job's just repenting for not having spoken right about God. God then turns immediately and says, Job's spoken rightly about me, and the friends have not. Well, we're in a bit of a pickle. Is Job, is Job repenting? Is God reprimanding Job for his sin? Is he putting it away? Well, if we do say that, yes, 42.6 says Job's repentance for sin, then we have several problems. The narrator has told us throughout the book he doesn't sin or charge God with wrong. Immediately afterwards, God commends him for what he does. Not only does he commend him, but he condemns the friends. And the friends have been saying all along that Job should repent. Why would God condemn them if Job ends up doing essentially what they have advocated? God's response should be, well, the friends got it partly right. Job got it partly right. This is how it meets out in the wash. But you don't get that at all. So if you say that Job is repenting of sin, you have to deal with both those things. You also have to deal with Elihu, the last person to speak, who I would say that the book presents as an incredibly arrogant figure who's not wise. But if Job is repenting of sin, then Elihu is right as well. You have to affirm him as well, but God doesn't address him at all. So, a pickle to be sure. One option is to reconsider 42.6 and how it's translated. And I think there's a better way to translate it and a better way to understand it. Uh, So look at 6a with me. When Job says that he despises himself, uh, note a couple things. First of all, the verb despise can be translated a number of ways and doesn't have to be despise. It can be to, to reject or retract um, with the idea of, uh, of changing one's position or one's direction. And in the Hebrew, there's no direct object in clause A. So when it says, uh, I despise myself, the interpreter is deciding to insert myself. He is drawing the conclusion that Job is speaking about himself, but that isn't necessarily warranted. It's not necessarily unwarranted, right? These are interpretive decisions that have to be made. But if myself isn't there, then really what you have is I retract or I retreat, uh, I change in some sense without a direct object for which you would have to go to the next clause. The next clause in 42.6b, I repent in dust and ashes. Now, more perplexity. The verb there that's translated repent uh, is used many different ways in the Old Testament. First of all, it's used mostly of God, right? And God isn't repenting of sin. It's used of God to describe that he's changing his mind or changing his attitude or he regrets a decision that he made, right? It has the, the notion of, uh, of again, uh, changing course. And then if we were to look for a direct object, it could be dust and ashes. Now, most of the time in human form, uh, when humans are using this verb that's here translated repent, it is used uh, to change one's mind or to reverse a decision. So, all right, right, boring as boring can be, of Hebrew grammar. Where do we end up with, if we, if we take all of those things into account, right, where do we end up? Well, you end up with a reading that is Unlike your 42.6 in ESV, it would read essentially, um, I I retract my position and I change course from my dust and ashes. In other words, 
Job is saying, if we were to put it kind of in modern day speech, um, okay, I'm changing my mind and my course of action and putting away my dust and ashes. So it's not necessarily a repentance for sin, which is problematic for all the reasons we've listed, but it is Job coming to a place where now having been confronted by God, he says, oh, my course of action that I'd taken to sit in dust and ashes and offer lament is no longer appropriate. Now I'm changing direction. Why would Job do that? Why does he decide now to change direction? It is because uh, he finally has what he has most wanted, which is God showing up. In all of the laments that we've considered over the course of the sermon series, Job at the beginning of each of his real laments, not where he's necessarily responding to a friend, but where he's speaking directly to God, what does he voice as his first concern? It is that I have lost the intimacy that I once had with God. That is what is most important to me and what I'm most affected now by not having. But in 42.5, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job changes courses now because he's experienced God in a way that he never has before. In fact, he's experienced God in a way that he didn't even experience in the midst of his righteousness, which was outstanding, given that he was the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And it is not by virtue of his righteousness, but it is only by virtue of his suffering that he actually knows God in a way, says, ah, I had heard of you before, but now I see you. The opportunity for intimacy and to know your character is much greater. God finally, or Job finally has what he has longed for. What does Job offer us then as we, as we come to this place of kind of semi-conclusion where finally Job has walked through it all and finds God meeting him? I mean, it is an understatement to say that Job is a remarkable book. There are books of the canon that if you lost, it wouldn't change much at all. But Job is a monumental book. Until Job, you have the idea in the Old Testament that God uh, blesses obedience and curses disobedience. We call that retributive theology. And by the time you get to Job, Job says, that doesn't work. It doesn't explain life, and it doesn't explain God's working in this world. And the gears begin to change, and they better change if the world is going to be saved by one who's cursed for his obedience. And in Job, you have the invitation to lament. You know, the saints of old didn't really talk to God in this way until you get to the book of Job. You know, think of how careful Abraham argues for the preservation of his kinsmen in Sodom. Right? Very carefully, very politely, very respectfully. And you get to Job, and Job says, Come to trial. I will be vindicated over you. What you're doing to me is unfair. Why don't you just snuff out my life and be fair about it? It's an invitation to us, right, to take up that voice in which God is saying, I would prefer that you dialogue with me as someone you actually loved and have a relationship with than someone you pretend about. Because you're all angry, and if you don't acknowledge and engage that anger with me, then you're going to handle it in an improper way. Right? Whether you're angry over your marriage or your children or the story that you grew up with. And how can you not look at the world and be angry? 
Right? Why did someone who grew up in such a horrific story end up in a place of pain and sadness? God, it seems like you prepared that person for a road of tragedy. Right? How can you not be angry about it? But then the question is, what do you do with it? Job goes to God and he relentlessly pursues him. Relentlessly, day after day, sitting in the trash heap, in dust and ashes, until God shows up. Do you love God enough to offer a lament to him? Job also has shown us the need for an intercessor. Right? In the Old Testament, you've walked to Job, and all along the way, you stand before God. But Job has this, this clairvoyant, oh, it's kind of a funny word. This is a certain clarity. Which he says, I know that I want a trial with God, but I also know that he's God and I'm not. And so I need someone who stands above me to intercede on my behalf. And he asks for a witness. He asks for a kinsman redeemer, someone who will advocate on behalf of him, someone who is stronger and more worthy to dialogue with God on his behalf. And of course, it looks forward to the coming of the redeemer. But for the first time, you have Israel saying, oh, Maybe we can't do it. Maybe we as a nation will never be successful in being obedient in the way that we will have a thriving and lasting relationship with God. Maybe we need someone to stand in that place on our behalf. And not that far in the distance, you're going to have Isaiah take up a new pen about a suffering servant. Where does this idea come from? Of course, from the Spirit of God, but the seed is planted in Job. It says we need someone to stand on our behalf. Isaiah will say, yes, we not only need someone to stand on our behalf, we need someone to suffer in our place. All preparation of approaching the cross. And then the end as Job is restored. It shows us the joy of restoration. Right? Indeed, this isn't resurrection, but that all things are put back as they should be. Now, does Job get this because he has been obedient? No. Job has been content to pursue God. All that he has wanted in the midst of this has been for God to show up and for the relationship to be restored. And because he has pursued God first and foremost and in fact alone and been content with that, with God comes the proper end of the story. But if you seek the proper end of the story, the proper ending that you view, that you would have, that you would write, you won't necessarily get God. And indeed, that story won't be good at all, that chapter or that ending. You see, we finally get an answer to the question that motivated the whole book, which occurred in one nine when Satan speaks to God, does Job love God for no reason? Yes, he does. Because he's sat and he's waited, he's lamented, he's pursued God, and when he could have cursed God and died, or when he could have just walked away and started again, He said, for you alone do I wait, and for you alone do I lament. Does Job love God for no reason? Absolutely. Do you? If you put aside all your expectations of God blessing your life and making you wise and protecting you from various things and filling your heart up with all kinds of love and the eternal life and resurrection, is he worthwhile to you at all? In the place of Job, would you love God for no reason? Would you continue to lament until the whirlwind showed up? Or would you choose to go in a different direction? 
As I said at the beginning, I think that story about the boy being left is really our desperate fear. One of our core fears that we're in the place of the pain of our own story, we're in the place of pain in our life as it exists now, we mourn the suffering of the world, and there are times in which we say, has God simply abandoned us on a blanket, simply to live out our days? Is he present? And if if he's present and seems so distant, does he actually care? What Job holds out for us is that by sitting in those places and pursuing God honestly, the whirlwind shows up. But it's not a book to explain away suffering. You know, I, I, uh, I used to think that you go to Job to, um, to think about suffering, right? Or to, um, if, you, if you're just in that place, and people, of course, in suffering would are, gravitate towards Job. And it's not that it's not about suffering. But if you're looking for a reason for suffering, uh, Job is going to grossly disappoint you. Because God shows up at the end, and how many reasons does he give for Job's suffering? None. Right? He doesn't even clue him in on the courtroom scene in the beginning. There's nothing for Job to hang his hat on and understand why this has proceeded. And wouldn't it be easier, you know, as you think about suffering, if God just said, went to Job in the beginning and said, listen, Job, Satan made this wager, and I took it, and you're, I'm backing you. I've seen your righteousness. I think you can hang out. Hold on during this time. This is what's going to happen. 40 days of lamenting in the trash. It's going to be awful, miserable. I need you to hang on. At the end of 40 days, I'll restore everything. All right? And you will be uh, venerated amongst the saints for all time. All right? Wouldn't that be a lot easier? Right? Job says, okay, I, I'm your man. Put me, put me in the game. Right? I'm ready to go. And each day he wakes up. He's like, okay, 35 days to go. 24 days to go. 13 days to go. And then finally it's over. Why doesn't God treat our suffering like that? I don't know that I have a definitive reason for you, but I'll tell you one thing. If he did, all of Job's suffering would have been about Job. It would have been about what he attained at the end of making that course rather than about him receiving more of God. And if God is the absolute best thing that we can have, then it's only in God's love that he allows us to suffer without explicit purpose. Because in our lament, we crave him. And we draw near to him, and we desire more of him. We receive a person and live in wisdom as a result, rather than having some silly answer to a particular affliction. Job is restored at the end of the book, and it's not because he earned it, but because restoration and resurrection is what always comes with having more of God. Do you want more of him? Are you afraid that in pursuing him he won't show up? Like the child on the blanket, you would cry out and he wouldn't appear, right? That's a pretty, that's a pretty serious fear. Why would I do it if he's not going to be there? And if I realize that he's not there, that's horrific. I don't want to go to that place, so I'm not going to try. I'm not going to draw near to him. I'm going to have a casual relationship where I can persuade myself that he's present, whether he really is or not. It's in the midst of your suffering that you have to walk in and lament and call upon God to be present. 
And it's there that the whirlwind will meet you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you were willing to meet Job. We thank you that you, uh, you are patient uh, with our profound disability. Would you forgive us for thinking highly of ourselves? And would you help us to remember that though we cannot see your purposes, does not mean that they do not exist. As Job did, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to put our faith and our confidence in you? And to know that by having you and trusting in you, all things will be brought to their proper conclusion. Forgive us where we think we can manufacture the proper conclusion. And would you cause us to be brave enough and courageous enough to offer true lament The idea that you would not respond to our truest lament is terribly frightening. Would you help to overcome our fear? And would you meet us in the midst of that lament? We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.